0: Hello and welcome to Sparkle Tech, episode number 50 in the series of musings and mutterings from my favorite city, San Francisco. One cool Saturday night last month, I found myself loitering with a group of strangers down at the gate to the Hyde Street Pier, staring into the murky shadows along its wooden length and wondering what on earth was wrong with me. The Hyde Street Pier is part of the San Francisco Maritime National Historic Park, I mean, you can't miss the spectacle of the ancient ships moored along its side, wooden masts and all. And even though I'd seen the place a thousand times, I'm embarrassed to admit I'd never set foot out there, not once. But there I was, hand in hand with my lady friend, shivering in the cold and waiting to be let in. A ranger appeared with a clipboard and began checking off names and handing out tickets, and before long the old iron gate was rolled aside to allow us entrance. A fat orange tabby hurried past, pausing briefly for a suspicious sniff of the hand, and then proceeded briskly down the pier. We followed, walking slowly, marveling at the dramatic view of the moon-illuminated bay, the flashing searchlight of Alcatraz, and the flood-lit golden towers of the bridge. We pass darkened exhibits of maritime history, pieces of mast, coils of chain, and the massive shapes of antique ships bobbing gently alongside. Masts creak, gulls mew, and the plinking of a mandolin drifts through the night. More visitors emerge from the shadows of the pier, all converging on the same location. A gangplank leading from the pier towards the sturdy hull of a massive wooden-masted square rigger, the majestic Baal Klua. And why had we come? To sing. The Park Service's website reads simply, Sing traditional working songs aboard a floating vessel. Bring a mug for hot cider served from the ship's galley. I'd come down to the waterfront this evening with no thought of sparkle tack in mind, but after five minutes aboard ship, I was glad I'd brought my notebook. We were among the first to arrive and, finding the folding chairs largely empty, began exploring. What a feeling to stand on the deck of an ancient wooden ship rocking gently in the moonlight. A night heron glided noiselessly past, alighting on one of the lines tethering the iron-sided vessel to the pier, watching the water attentively as we wandered the decks and waited for the singing to begin. After a little exploring, scrambling up ladders, tugging experimentally on the, uh, steering wheel, and reading the plethora of fascinating tidbits delineated by the helpfully ubiquitous signage, we heard the sound we'd been waiting for, and the group began to assemble. We walked down towards the shelter deck, the source of the sound, and clambered over the high-silled doorway. A tall man in informal ranger gear stood in the spacious, low-ceilinged cabin and belted out the classic... Ruben Ranzo with the enthusiastic participation of a growing crowd. The place was chock-full of characters, from bearded old men in captain's hats and peacoats to colorfully coiffed hipsters, from babes in arms to cane-leaning elders. A couple of guitars, a banjo, mandolin, violin, several accordions, and the odd harmonica comprised occasional accompaniment for the mostly a cappella renditions of songs like Holloway Johnny, Captain Morgan, Made of Amsterdam and Blow Boys Blow. Here's how this shanty thing works. Someone just starts. The first stanza is called out by somebody, anybody, and then, though there are no lyric books to guide you, the whole room responds with a simple responsive chorus, powerfully sung in unison. These are basically work songs, probably originating in the middle of the 19th century among a certain class of mostly American working men, including lumbermen, railroad workers, dock workers, sailors, and black slaves. I'd heard the name shanty explained somewhere as a sort of degeneration of the French word chanté, meaning to sing, and probably applied to this music through the French-speaking port of New Orleans. Another source tells me, however, that it was originally applied to this music by folklorists who took the name from the primitive dwellings, called shanties, which characterized the waterfronts and work camps of the period. Either way, a number of different kinds of songs and styles end up getting sung down at the Balclua. Spirituals, Irish folk songs, etc., drawing the occasional good-natured cry of, Hey, that isn't a shanty! But the sea songs form the backbone of the evening. Shanties were traditionally used by sailors to lighten their workloads and give structure to certain repetitive tasks, following patterns which coincided with the hauling rhythms needed for raising sails, say, or for longer, heavier work such as raising anchor or pumping out the bilge. I'll play a great example that I dug up by Todd Menton, the old singer from Boiled in Lead, from his solo album entitled Where Will You Land? This popular shanty is called Blow, Boys, Blow, and I think you'll quickly hear the way the rhythm works. A Yankee ship come down the river. Blow, Boys, Blow! Her masts and yards do shine like silver. Blow, Me, Bully, Boys, Blow! Oh, how do you know she's a Yankee liner? Blow, Boys, Blow! The stars and stripes float out behind her. Blow, Me, Bully, Boys, Blow! Isn't that great? The words of these songs typically reflect the daily experience of the sailors' lives. Howard Hornstein, in favorite sea songs of the ancient mariner's shantymen, describes them as simple and direct, wild and spirited, salty and rough as a North Atlantic gale. The songs weren't written down, but in the oldest form of cultural transmission were passed from sailor to sailor and from crew to crew, evolving and mutating in the process. The simplicity of the structure allows for an endless number of verses to be recalled or invented on the spot, and down at the Balclua, a single song can go on for 20 minutes with different people tossing in the verses that they know, or, in the tradition of the sailors, making new ones up on the spot. I've told all of my friends about the shanty sing, but have had a little trouble communicating its power and attraction. Perhaps one truly has to be there in order to appreciate the satisfaction to be had in singing such primal songs in their natural setting. And what a setting! The Balclua is an absolute treasure and one with real roots, as far as a ship can grow roots, in San Francisco and the Pacific coast. If the shanty-sing doesn't draw you down to the maritime park, perhaps a brief history of the vessel will do the trick. The 301-foot square rigger was built in Glasgow, Scotland in 1886 and named for a town in New Zealand originally settled by Scots, which explains the name. It's spelled B-A-L-C-L-U-T-H-A, which looks as though it ought to be pronounced Balclutha, but because the name is of Scottish Gaelic origin, that T-H just gets left out in the cold. Balclua. Her job description was that of deep water Trader, and following her four-and-a-half-month maiden voyage, which just happened to be to San Francisco, she hauled cargo to and from ports all over the world, including Burma, Australia, and Chile, making the dangerous journey around Cape Horn 17 times in her first 13 years and carrying everything from scotch and wine to coal and lumber. In 1902, she was sold to the Alaska Packers Association of San Francisco and became, through a special act of Congress, the very last vessel to fly the flag of the Hawaiian Kingdom. The Packers renamed her the Star of Alaska. All of their vessels were named Star of something or other, which helps to explain the star motif that appears all over the ship's hardware, and gave her a new job, that of sailing 2,400 miles from San Francisco to Alaska each spring, returning in the fall with a hold packed with canned salmon. The ship's hold today recreates that era, with rows of crated salmon stretching from bulwark to bulwark. I discovered that orange tabby that had whisked past us on the pier earlier curled up asleep on a coil of rope in the midst of all this, no doubt dreaming happy salmon dreams and living a far more comfortable life than the sailors on the Alaska Star had. Though the ship had carried only a crew of 26 on her maiden voyage as the Baklua, the photo is online at sparkletac.com. As the Alaska star, she was outfitted with extra cabins and the crew size ballooned to over 200. The cruise quarters are reason enough to visit the ship. One look at these cramped and once filthy spaces is worth a thousand words describing the travails of a life at sea. Even so, one can almost hear the echoes of Sea shanties past ringing off the cabin walls. It's downright amazing that this ship survived to be admired into this century. One of her many narrow escapes came on one of the salmon trips when she ran hard aground near Kodiak Island in 1906. The crew was able to patch her up and tow her back to San Francisco for repairs, and she continued in the packing trade until, feeling her age, no doubt, as well as competitive pressure from ships powered by steam, she was retired in 1930. Here's where her story takes a strange turn. In 1933, a colorful carnival promoter with the unlikely name of Tex Kissinger picked her up for a mere $5,000 and moved her south to the Los Angeles area. Renamed the Pacific Queen, she earned an uncredited spot in cinematic history with her appearance in the 1935 film Mutiny on the Bounty. The film won the Oscar for Best Picture that year, and unlike half of her co-stars, which included Clark Gable and Charles Lawton, our ship was mysteriously not even nominated. Her Hollywood career was a short one. The carny Tex Kissinger towed her up and down the Pacific coast for the next decade, exhibiting her to credulous audiences as a genuine pirate ship. Poorly maintained and just plain old by this time, though, she was slowly disintegrating, and in another fortunate escape, the iron-hulled ship somehow avoided ending up being turned into a tank or a bomber by World War II scrap metal drives. When Tex died in the early 50s, she ended up beached and practically abandoned in Sausalito. Her guardian angel stepped in one more time, however, and the Maritime Museum, then newly established in that gorgeous old, streamlined modern bathhouse at Aquatic Park, purchased the wreck in 1954. Thanks to supplies donated by San Francisco businesses and thousands of man hours donated by local labor unions, thanks guys, just a year later, she was completely restored under her original name and open to the public. The Balclua brought in $100,000 that year, not only rewarding the time and energy invested, but also paving the way for the salvage and restoration of many other museum ships around the world. She became property of the National Park Service in 1978 and was registered as a National Historic Landmark in 1985. By the way, I should mention that there's an impressive list of Park Service-sponsored events down at Hyde Street Pier every single month, all very inexpensive or even free of charge. I'll post a link to the Park Service's website at sparkletac.com. You can feel the history vibrating beneath your feet as you walk up the gangplank and the sound of the sea shanties hammer the feeling home. Ranger Peter Kaysen, who graciously supplied me with information about the shanty sings, certainly felt it when he climbed aboard ship in 1989 for his first shanty sing. He writes, When I saw a hundred plus people singing their hearts out and a national parks ranger with a guitar leading it, I thought, what a perfect job. I knew right then what I wanted to do for a living. The first shanty-sing sprang from the Maritime Park's very first Festival of the Sea, a festival of sea music, in 1979. According to current shanty-sing leader Peter Kaysen, the festivals are the park's most popular event, attracting some of the finest names in music of the sea, performers such as Louis Killen, Stan Hugill, and the Georgia Sea Island Singers, to name but a few. There have been about a dozen since then, Budget constraints forced them to skip a year every so often, but at the end of that first one, a group of singers stayed aboard ship and shared songs for a while. At the end of the session, someone asked, do we have to wait until next year's festival to do this again? The answer was obvious and people from various local music communities, Irish, folk, and so on, began to meet intermittently aboard ship to sing. In 1981, the Park Service instituted it as an official monthly event led by a park ranger, Dave Nettel, who hosted the Sings for the next eight years. It's known as the grandfather of all Shanty Sings, and dozens have sprung up in its wake in places like Boston, Washington DC, Seattle, and even in Houston, Texas. I asked Ranger Cason about the secret to the program's success throughout the last quarter-century, and he immediately mentioned both the park's continued support and the non-judgmental atmosphere, characterizing it as a safe place to sing. That it is, and believe me, though there are a few with great vocal talent there, it isn't the quality of the voice that counts, it's the enthusiasm. Kaysen, as well as others who have actually been attending since the sing's inception, have seen a real community develop there, with kids growing into adults and the blossoming of shy people who had never sung in public before. A community based around sea singing? Well, why not? A bearded man cradling a baby swathed in pink leads around. The rollicking, drunken sailor, one of the oldest chanties known, as it happens, gets a spontaneous new verse from a jolly man in a captain's cap. A trio of young female hipsters in the back row, clearly regulars, knit together and belt out the tunes with unironic passion. Someone plays the spoons, another breaks out a battered concertina. I glance away from the singers and out through one of the doorways towards the city lights, almost imperceptibly rolling and swaying with the motion of the bay, Then think about how dark those hills were 150 years ago. A girl who looks to be about 12 leads a hearty chorus of the piratey Billy Bones, followed by a version of King of the Sea from local folk institution Faith Petrick, still laughing and singing out strong at age 90. There are breaks for coffee or the aforementioned hot cider, and remember to save your ticket for a raffle. The deck is filled with song until about midnight, and you can pretty much show up whenever you want. Just be careful. Show up after 11 o'clock, and you'll walk right into the final segment known cheerfully as Dirty Shanty Time when things get hilariously and, fittingly for San Francisco's maritime heritage, vulgar. However late into the evening you choose to stay, I can almost guarantee that you'll feel something out there. I certainly did, felt the power and weight of history before I'd sung a single note, there in the dark with my feet planted on the wooden deck under the mast. But Ranger Kaysen told me that the most memorable moment of all the sings he's attended since he first arrived in 1989 was a couple of years back when the Georgia Sea Island Singers, a legendary group of African-American traditional singers, joined the Shanty sing. They sang a rousing version of Pay Me My Money Down in the hold of the C.A. Thayer, a tall-masted schooner now under reconstruction, with about 200 people present. Then, with all of the Shanty Singh participants ringing out the chorus, they walked up the ladder and out to the pier, still singing. According to Kaysen, people still talk about it as one of the Singh's all-time greatest moments. You had to have been there to fully understand the energy and excitement of that makes me shiver just to think of it. This place is a community and a refuge, however small, from the encroachment of global culture. And it's cheering to know that even in this artificial age, it's standing room only on a ship in San Francisco for a tradition almost two centuries old. The singing is sheer pleasure, the atmosphere on board otherworldly, and the experience as a whole? Pure San Francisco. Save the first Saturday of next month, maybe of every month, and come on down to the pier. Thanks go out this week to Derek Zondefan for supplying the track Knitting Sand provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check them out at music.podshow.com. So, 50 episodes. Who would have thought it? Thanks to those of you who've sent emails and sound files congratulating me on this milestone. Das heißt, shooting Alyssa? The usual assortment of entertaining links appears on the sparkletac.com website, and I'm reachable there on the comments page or by email at sparkletacgmail.com at for questions, comments, or show requests. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time.